Tonight we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the last time we looked at one of the most tragic accounts in Scripture where a man, a child of God, uh, expressed or understood as a man after God's own heart, sinks so deep into sin. And sin is pleasurable for a time, but there's consequences. And tonight we're going to look at those consequences in chapter 12 because God is a holy God. He's a just God. He's a God of justice. Uh, We'll also observe mercy and grace, and only an infinite God can mix all these things together and make it come out right. Well, we left off with David's adultery with Bathsheba, and then she murders his husband, Uriah, who was an honorable man and a loyal man to David. Chapter 11 ends with David taking the widow, Bathsheba, as his own wife, and they have a child together from the adultery. And by this time, David's probably thinking, thinking he got away with it. And we, there's going to be a lot of parallels to Sunday's message, Habakkuk 2. It's pretty amazing how that happens. But we talked about even powerful people who are drunk on power. They get sloppy in their quest for power and control. Things come out. Okay. Now, in this instance, it was a God thing. So starting with verse 1 in chapter 12, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan the prophet, to David, And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So we're going to, I'm just going to, for the sake of ease and taking notes, if you're taking notes, the first thing that we deal with is the sin, of course. Without the sin, we wouldn't have the rest of the story. All the consequences. Uh, So sin is number one. The second thing we look at is the exposure of that sin. God told Nathan to go to David and show him his sin. And this is how he does it. Why? Well, well, first of all, he shows David in the third person outside of himself so he can objectively look at the sin he committed. You know, because when we're in sin, we're not objective about ourselves. And David's in cover-up mode. No doubt, if Nathan told David about his sin right off the bat, David might have been defensive or even hostile. Nathan cleverly breaches the walls of David's defenses by allegorizing the situation and also cleverly using a shepherd example because David remembers the days that he was a shepherd boy. So it was personal to him, right? And I got to tell you, this is not an easy place to be. You don't want to be the prophet Nathan. I'm sure there was some he was trepidity. Uh, you know, he had to do what the Lord had called him to do that was important. And even when we have to deal with it and go to somebody, and maybe God's called us to do that, it's not fun. Actually, as a pastor, it's one of the things I dread the most. Uh, It's really at the bottom of my list right next to funerals. You know, saying it's... But you have to do it. You have to do it. In our application, if we don't do it, it might lead to gossip. It might lead us trying to vent. I'm just venting. You ever hear that? Are we always venting to somebody? Well, it could be a nice word for gossip. So, in, you know, maybe we don't have a situation this grave, 
but we're called to be frank with each other. We're called to be honest with each other. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing surely shall die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So the third point we look at here is the response. David's fury is aroused against what? The sin of thievery. What's his pronouncement? Death. Death for the thief. And a fourfold financial restoration, presumably first, which comes from Exodus 22. David knew the law. But David now is painting himself into a corner, so to speak. Why? Because he's in self-deception. And that's what sin does. It deceives us. You know, I mean, I can look back and the bigger the sin, the bigger the self-deception. We've been a Christian long enough, we can, we can see it. And hopefully, there's someone close to us that really loves us that will show us that we're doing something wrong. What's the common line when you go to a person and you expose that sin and they're being defensive? What do they all say? You're judging me. You're judging my heart. Well, a few Sundays ago, Pastor Luis is here and I think he debunked that line. But it's a common line, and it basically means back off. Back off. You're getting too close. Because it really has no basis in truth. It's a form of manipulation. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. David, you are the man. Now in our vernacular, if somebody says, you're the man, that's a good thing. But it's a culture clash. You are the man, David. You're the one. It's not a story. It's about you. Ever been in that position? Not a good position to be in. Harold, you're the man. Right? Mike, you're the man. Terry, you came in late. You're the man. <laughs> but it's, it's not a good place. It's not a place that we want to be. So here's the indictment, the fourth part, the indictment. Now remember, this is coming from Nathan's mouth. The king could have killed Nathan. He could have stopped him, called his guards in, and said, off with his head, bury his body outside before anybody finds out. There's going to be times in our lives that we have to do the difficult thing. And we may have beads of sweat on our forehead. We might agonize it over it the night before, but it's something the Lord's called us to do. Again, parallels with Habakkuk 2 on Sunday. This could hurt us in our situation, could hurt us financially, it could hurt us physically, it could get us in trouble with the law, and it could hurt us socially. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Somebody really loves me, they're going to come up to me and tell me the truth about me. And I've had this discussion so many times in the age of social media, that's the big thing. I could care less about having a thousand Facebook friends. 
whether it's you know, any type of social media, the quest for all those friends. I've often said to those that are interested in ministry, if you're doing ministry right, people will start deleting you. If you're doing it right, you won't keep accumulating friends, you'll start to lose friends, and that's a fact. Now Nathan recounts the litany of blessings God provided for David. And I think the last part was most cutting in verse 8. Can picture, I don't know how God said this. I don't know how Nathan said it. If that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Now, I don't believe this was said angrily. I don't think God is an angry God who's just walking around and seeing who, who he could pick on next. You know, Bob. God's angry. He's coming after Bob. Then John behind him. And so on down the line. No, I believe it broke God's heart. David, I th- he said it just like heartfelt. I would have done so much more for you, David. Just ask. You know, what is it? What didn't I do for you? We have to... Listen, any ministry leader, clergy, has to be very careful that they, we, don't misrepresent God. He's not an angry God. He's a loving God. He's angry with sin. He's a God of justice. But when he looks at us, especially if we're covered under the blood of Christ, he looks us in a lovingly favorable manner because because of what jesus did we took on his righteousness there was a switch going on at the cross god wants to bless us and when i read this there's just some scriptures that stand out to me and i think about them and i read them again and i memorize them and i meditate on them you know i have to look at my own life god has blessed me so much i'm not wealthy you know i don't have a huge bank account but i am a blessed man I'm a blessed man. I remember somebody of, I was having, sharing a meal with somebody of of pretty relatively high importance who I'm trying to lead to the Lord. And he's not there yet, but he said to me at the end of the, the conversation, he said, you're a wealthy man. I can see that you're a wealthy man. And, and it's something that he wasn't ready for yet. But my wealth came from the fact that I really have a relationship with the Lord. And he wasn't there yet. You know, we, we don't ask at times, Jesus says. I, I wonder all the prayer requests that go unanswered, that we haven't asked, all the things that God would have blessed us with, but we don't ask. Jesus said, how much would God give you the Holy Spirit? As much as you want if you ask for him. You know, sometimes when my son has a gripe, I'll ask him, did you pray? And if he says no, I say, then don't complain to me. I'm a very compassionate father, as you can tell. <laughs> You know, I want to be my son's hero, and I am, but I want God to be his hero first. There's some things I can't do. Sunburn he just got, I can't make that go away. When he's sick, I can't make that go away. More things I can't do for him than I can, and I try to point them towards his heavenly father. You've got to go to him first. I'll help you in any way I can, but there's some things I can't do. So here are the charges. Number one, David forgot the goodness of the Lord. Let us never forget the goodness of the Lord. Two, David despised, and I'm just reading you what what God said through the prophet Nathan. David despised God's commandment, and we can look at them. I can consider five five out of the ten commandments right off the top, number one, in, in this order. Coveted first, adultery next, bearing false witness against the husband third, murder, the last one that he did. In addition to that, probably putting a God above God. He set up an idol in his heart, otherwise he wouldn't have gone this far. So that's five. 
and I'm sure we could make a case for one or two more. But above all, he used the enemy's sword to kill one of Israel's greatest champions, Uriah, faithful, loyal, self-sacrificing. David really took the place of a traitor. This is pretty bad. Oh, the depths that we will sink when we're in sin. You know, we can cut it off or we could just keep going down the drain until we go out with the waste. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise, raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. Wow. The fifth point is the punishment phase. And we're going to start seeing this in the successive chapters as we go through it. A few points to keep in mind. Number one, God's punishment, the entire aggregate punishment for the adultery and murder was less severe than David's punishment would have been for this allegorized rich man who had a barbecue with his neighbor's lamp. Okay? So that brings me to the point that I have to be honest with you. If I commit a pretty bad sin or I'm in sin and and I'm just being self-deceived, no offense, but... I don't want any of you guys judging me. I want, to, I want God to judge me. And you have every right to confront me about my sin. But when it comes to punishment, I want to put my hands in, in God's. I want to put my life in God's hands. And, and that's where we all, it's, it's a safe place to be. I've sinned, Lord. You confess your sin to God and you trust him with the outcome. He's merciful. Not just merciful to David. He's merciful to us as well. The second is that There's a principle at work, two different scriptures, and I'll read them. They're short. Galatians 6, 7, it says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. We can't mock God, especially as his people, and then just keep going. Bad example to the unbelievers. It it pushes people away from Jesus instead of bringing them close to Jesus. God isn't mocked. You reap what you sow. Hosea 8, 7 says, If you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Man, be careful of that. So my question is, what are we sowing in life? Brothers and sisters, on a day-to-day basis, what are we sowing? Because we'll reap the fruits of what we're sowing. Is it good? Is it bad? How are our actions? Sowing in our actions. How are our words? Because everything we do yields eternal consequences. Like the Bible says in Corinthians, some of the stuff we do is just going to be burned up because it, it has no use eternally to God has no use to us. I want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That's what I'm banking on. It keeps me going. It keeps me going. Third, what are the causative factors of the punishment? In other words, from the reading of the text, is God tempting other men to lie with David's wives? We have to be very careful of this. How are we reading this? And this is where the theology comes in and, and things to that nature. The Bible tells us, it's clear, that if we're looking at a scripture and we're confused and it makes God look like something he's not, we have to compare it with other scripture. Scripture reveals scripture. So number one, the Bible tells us that God is not the author of sin. And two, God does not tempt anyone to sin. We saw that in James. This is what they call anthropomorphic, which is a very big five-syllable word. It's a $50 word. And it basically means attributing 
personal characteristics to God, who is infinite. So we're trying to find finite words, including the author, to describe an infinite God. In other words, God took his protective hand off of David. He, he took his, his hand off of it. These consequences of sin that I'll give some examples in our lives, um, God was going to allow it to, to fester, to, to ferment, to happen. And he was going to just going to, you know, he forgave David. He restored David. He showed David mercy and grace that we'll see. But there were still consequences of the sin. The whole kingdom knew, no doubt, by this time. Word gets around, even back then. And even though David was forgiven, others took what he did as a license to sin. Well, the king did it. What's the big deal about what I'm doing? Well, my dad did it. They were a phase shift behind David's restoration. The real story, the backstory, is that David was forgiven and he was restored. But others looked at what happened in their carnality and in their minds probably thought what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And we'll see that play out in successive chapters with his family. I have to tell you that my son at 13, he's learning how to, and they start young too, they learn how to pick up hypocrisy in their parents. And I don't fear that, I welcome it. Because there's times I've had to say to my son, yeah, you're right, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. I don't, don't take my example. This is what the Bible says. It's a good thing. You know, I, listen, it's okay, he's 13. He, he sees things very black and white. This is right, this is wrong. And sometimes he's right, and I'm wrong. Now, don't go pumping my son for information next time you see him, okay? <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard as parents when we, if we, have a pattern of bad examples, and then we tell our kids not to do that especially as believers, they can sniff out hypocrisy very easily. And sin has its own punishment. So here's a few examples. Number one, the drunkard can be completely forgiven and completely restored. However, he may or she may be saddled with liver disease that plagues them for the rest of their life. Consequence of sin, completely forgiven, completely restored, maybe even being used in ministry. The promiscuous can be forgiven and be restored, but be saddled with an STD or an unexpected child. Completely forgiven. No more shame. However, there's a consequence of that sin. The self-righteous and the prideful, again, can be forgiven and restored, but may be saddled for a while with a harsh reputation and not be used for a time. I want to go off on a little bit more of a tangent, and, and it does really connect here, that... In Romans 13, there's also a debt to society. I mean, how many of you, I remember when I was a kid, the son of Sam Killer, David Berkowitz, right? Murdered like six, seven people. And uh, in prison, he, was, he became a Christian. Completely different countenance, uh, wrote a whole tract, spoke about his testimony. And when his parole comes up, he says, I don't deserve to see the light of day. He actually stays and he, he witnesses to the other prisoners. But he's a changed man. Carla Faye Tucker, remember her? Several years ago, axe murdered two people, um, became a Christian, but had to, it was in Texas, and she was executed. She had to face society's punishment, a consequence. Now, in this situation, since there was no one higher in the land than the king, who's going to challenge the king? There's a, an expression that says, if you plot to kill the king, you better kill the king. 
<laughs> Otherwise, you're in trouble. So who's going to really challenge, even if they knew it was going on? So God had to step in, because there's nobody higher than him in the land. He had to face that, uh, that, that punishment, those consequences. And verse 10, it says, the, the sword will not depart from your house. Now, three of David's sons, Amnon, who we're going to look at in the next chapter, Absalom and Adonijah were slain because of their sin. Because they got embroiled in something. Don't know. Did they think, well, gee, you know, dad's still the king. Maybe it's okay for me. And they start to fall into this situation. Again, not seeing the restoration part, just seeing, well, he got away with it. And they start to do these things. And three of them are slain. So the sword is prevalent. However, God didn't just kill them. This was a, a, a result of their own sin. Remember that. We'll, we'll see that. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So the sixth point that we're looking at here is confession and repentance. David didn't have to take this route. He chose to immediately, instead of, again, you see these administrations, they just keep lying and piling lies on top of lies to not lose the power. David just said, I've sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, David expresses his confession. It's, it's, some of the Psalms are very expressive. It really reveals the heart of the man. But David genuinely repents, and neither one of them will die. And later on, they will have Solomon together. But again, more mercy than David would have shown to this fictitious man who stole the lamb in the allegory, right? 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Now, the reasoning behind the punishment, number seven. David's actions caused God's enemies to blaspheme. That word can also mean to scorn or despise. Unbelievers may be spiritually ignorant, but they're not stupid. And they can rightly smell hypocrisy on us. Yes, I said us. Because let's just not look at this as something happened a long time ago. There's a lesson for all of us in this room today. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. We're ambassadors, the Bible tells us. We're to represent him. We're to go into the unbelieving world and say, I come from a faraway kingdom, and that kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And it's so much better in where you're living now. And the rulers are so much better. And the laws are so much fairer. And God wants you to... That's who we are. We're ambassadors. We represent God. So the question is, are we doing a good job? Are we turning people towards the Lord? Or are we not doing such a good job? In worst case scenario, we're turning people away from the Lord. <laughs> I've heard the expression... I think it was Gandhi who said, I love your Jesus, but I don't love the Christians. I mean, it was something that, um, I'm twisting it. I, maybe it wasn't him. It was an expression. Somebody said, I love your Jesus, but I don't like the ones that are following him. So hopefully we're not in that group. Now, does it mean we do right all the time? No. But we also can't have a laissez-faire attitude when it comes to our faith. We are free. God has freed us from the shackles of sin. However, like the Apostle Paul said, I will now voluntarily restrict myself. 
I will not eat meat in those pagan temples. I will not eat meat that's sacrificed to pagans if some of those new believers get stumbled and they walk away from the Lord. So I'm free, but for the love of another brother, I will restrain myself. The world is watching. I want to just read uh, Warren Wearsby, Be Restored, page 92. It's an interesting perspective. He says, Chastening is not punishment meted out by an angry judge who wants to uphold the law. Rather, it's difficulty permitted by a loving father who wants his children to submit to his will and develop godly character, which is also good for us. Chastening is an expression of God's love, and the Greek word used in Hebrews 12, 5 through 13, means child training, instruction, discipline. Greek boys were taken to the gymnasium early in life and taught running, wrestling, boxing, swimming, and throwing exercises that were assigned so the boys would develop a sound mind in a sound body. In the Christian life, chastening isn't always God's response to our disobedience. Sometimes he's preparing us for the challenges yet to come, like a coach preparing athletes for the Olympics. If there were no painful consequences to sin or subsequent chastening from the hand of God, what kind of an irresponsible world would be living in? Would we be living in? So yes, we put our eggs in the basket of, of his world, his kingdom. Right? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But at the same time, God has not completely allowed this world to fall completely into chaos. He still maintains some semblance of order. I think for the sake of the unbelievers, to get them to come. Verse 15. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. She's still being called Uriah's wife, and it became very ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So God allows the child to pass on. Now, I'm going to mitigate the situation, although, be careful, I don't, have to, I don't have to defend God. I mean, it's just understanding the text. He is, everything he does is proper. So let's look at this. Number one, God may have protected that child by taking the little baby home to be with God for a few reasons. Number one, everybody would have known the situation there would have possibly been, as he grew up to be a boy and of the age of a king, he might have been executed. He might have been an outcast, a pariah. So there might have been a lot of things that would have happened to illegitimize him so he didn't get a position after David. There was a lot of sibling rivalry back then. And there was, for, for the world, for the, for the carnal, it was a good reason to point fingers at this kid. Could have been a very difficult existence for him. Uh, number two... From everything that I've read in the Old Testament and Jesus' teachings in the New Testament, I don't care what other so-called Christian religions teach. I think it's very clear in Scripture that if a child passes, he goes right to be with God. I also believe that in, in Egypt, when the firstborn was taken, if they were under a certain age, even though they were from pagan parents, God took them to be with him. They didn't know any better. 
I mean, how do you punish a baby for the way that parents raised them? Even the whole idea about baptism. Some teach that if a child is two babies, you know, mine and Terry's, and they're both infants, and he's a good parent and baptizes him, and I don't baptize mine, and they both pass, that Terry is, is going to heaven and mine's stuck in purgatory. That's ridiculous. You're going to punish a, an infant? That doesn't make any sense. So, you know, it's kind of the luck of the draw if you get good parents or not, depending on where you end up when you die. I don't want to talk too much about it, but um, you, you get the point. Verse 20. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? So he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This is remarkable how David's behavior completely changes and goes back to normal. Why? Because God made the decision. He executed that decision, and there was nothing more David could do. It actually was a very healthy attitude. We all have tragedy in our life. All of us, some worse than others. I've heard some things that are just truly heartbreaking, you know, especially wearing both hats. I tell you, some people really fall into some hard stuff. But we can do a few things with that tragedy. We can, at some point, grieve it, give it to the Lord, and move forward. Or we can just keep holding on to bitterness and anger and resentment and, you know, it just pulls you down. And every tragedy that happens, it makes us more... You ever meet people like that? Life is a death sentence to them. And I don't make fun. I feel compassion. And I want to tell them, and I do, tell them about the Lord. You know, come on, you know, the Lord, give them your burdens. And some just, they walk around with this heavy baggage, this bitterness, this misery. And life becomes almost like a prison sentence, a sentence of torture. Or we can move on. You know, when I do funerals, I talk about the grieving process and what it means. Yeah, when somebody passes, we grieve. And that can take a while, but at some point, we have to move forward. Not to carry it around all the time. And a real aberration of that is when some always want to refer back to their old life and make themselves out to be victims and sounds like I'm being mean, but I'm really not. It's really very aberrant if you've studied uh, human behavior. It's not healthy at all. And, you know, I'll leave it at that. Verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The eighth point. And final point is grace. Grace. That word even sounds nice, doesn't it? Grace. It's a nice word. Um, punishment meted out, then grace prevails. God could have made the punishment a lot worse. God could have said to David, well, you pronounced the judgment on yourself, so I'm going to go with your answer. He didn't. He showed him grace. Mercy first, and then grace.
actually Solomon ends up building the temple. Now let's just look at some of these names in translation. David means well-beloved. Solomon means peaceable. And actually it's pronounced Yedidiah, beloved by the Lord. So my question is, what's your story? What's the sin that you committed? What did you do 10 years ago? Who did you hurt and they passed away and you're carrying guilt around with you? Don't call it out, but bring it to recall. Who made a general mess of their lives and they're sitting here and, and ruining, as I'm speaking, they're ruining the past? Well, I'll tell you what, if God can do this with David, he can do it with you. You know, I, I try to talk to people in counseling about the goodness of God and the mercy of God. How he wants to help us, uh, not only with our spiritual lives, but also with our body and our mental status. God is, he, he ministers to the complete man, the whole picture. You know, and, and we all, you know, it's, it's funny how God often, well, he forgives us, and he's restored us, and we're still holding on to something that we did. It's almost if we could speak with him, he'd say, let that go. I let it go a long time ago. I don't even remember it. Stop bringing it up. Can we move past? You know, I want to really shower you with blessings, but you're in the way. Sometimes the biggest obstacle to moving forward is when we look in the mirror, that person. <laughs> so he can do the same with you. He really can. I'm just going to turn to Psalm 103 and read the first five verses. And this is a psalm of David. And this is his mindset. There's a few psalms about the restoration, about the, the confession. He, he, he does a few psalms around that incident. And you can just see him praising the Lord. You can just see his general attitude. And starting in verse 1, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies? Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? Pastor Paul is going to get to that um, probably in a few months. It's a great psalm. David was a man after God's own heart. I tell you, when he sinned, he sinned big. But uh, his, his, his repentance was genuine. Uh, Psalm 32 is another good one to, to read. And, you know, I find interesting, I'm actually looking through the, the Bible, looking through the scriptures up until the point of David's death, but you know what I find out? He doesn't take any more wives, which is nice. It seems like he learned his lesson. It seemed like he really got it this time, you know, from here to the end of his life. doesn't take anybody else into his, his house or whatever. Verse 26 last few verses. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. That's pretty interesting. He wanted Dave to get the, the credit and the benefit. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head, and it weighed, the weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out of the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did with all the cities of the people of Ammon, 
Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. More grace, David. Not only that, Solomon, he's going to build a temple. You, you and Bathsheba are not going to die. In addition to that, you're going to be victorious over Ammon. Now let's look at this as we close. And let's get away from David and look at our own lives. Let's look at these stages when we commit a sin. Let's look at the good template for success. Number one, we sin. We all do it. There's not one person in this room that doesn't sin. So let's just start with that. <laughs> um, at this point, we can stop and confess the sin we're involved in. We can do that too. You know, 1 John 1.9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and all of our unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, this is what comes as a result of that. Two, let's say there needs to be exposure. Let's say we don't kind of give it up voluntarily, in the, like in this situation. Our sin now is exposed. We can do two things. And you know what's funny? I've been in this situation. Your mind works so fast. You know, put up, you know, put up the force field, you know, put up the fence, the, the gate, or, oh, yeah, you got me. You're right. And it's, it's like a, where it's whatever's in your heart at the time. And if we've lived long enough, sometimes we're defensive, and sometimes we... We give it up. So we can do two things. We can deny, we can hide, we can obfuscate, or we can confess, repent. Repentance leads to forgiveness, and that leads to restoration. Okay? Three, punishment and consequences, sometimes from God, sometimes from the sin itself, which we looked at, and sometimes just as a natural result of deviating from the path that God has us on. We follow the scripture. It's a template for good, healthy, clean, you know, successful living. We're on that road. Just by virtue or by nature of us deviating off that path, there's natural consequences for it. That's simple. And then there's mercy and grace. And it wasn't just for David. You know, I, I just would encourage everybody here, or everybody listening, however they're listening, website, CD, if there is a sin, confess it. Give it up to God. Put yourself at his mercy. He's a good God. Right? I would just encourage anyone who's struggling with that to, to move forward in life. But a lot of times we can't move forward in life when that obstacle is in the way. And we're usually the hindrance to that obstacle. And we think by covering it and hiding it and denying it that it's good because nobody else will find out. But remember, in your quiet time, God knows. He already knows. He's just looking for you to do what David did. So I just would encourage everyone here that in order to really walk with him strong, it's something that we just got to give up to him. You know, maybe if you're blessed with somebody you really can trust who's an accountability partner, you can pray about that. Um, and, and just be completely free from those shackles of sin. So let's not look at David. Let's look at ourselves and... Probably nobody in this room probably will end up committing adultery and then killing the spouse of that person. However, sin is sin. Like I said Sunday, be careful of comparative sin. I'm, I'm okay and you know, Don over there, his sin is definitely worse than mine. I'm the pastor. Look, I've arrived. Everybody's sin is worse than mine. It's kind of funny because when we sin, we... If, if me and the young adults over here, we've stolen something, I could just say, well, I'm the pastor. I wasn't thinking. I was just very 
But those young adults, man, they're always getting in trouble. They're young. It's that generation. So I'm inflating what they've done. But they can also turn it around and do the same thing. They could say, you know, we're young. We're struggling. We're, we needed this. And, but Pastor Joe, he should know better. What a big hypocrite. You know, all churches are the same. But you see, and I just made that up in the spur of the moment. That's what we do. We look at others and we magnify it. We look at ours and we mitigate. So, again, get that elephant in the room, out of the room. Deal with it personally with God and watch how he strengthens your walk and watch that measure and that recipe for success. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your blessings and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that, that we have something to read, that this happened so that we could avoid making that mistake. Avoid.